0: Hello and welcome to the Verity podcast for Thursday, October 12th, 2023. The only podcast that separates the facts from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark.
1: And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Gaza's sole power plant shuts down while Israel forms a unity government.
0: A massacre is reported at the Kafar Aza kibbutz in Israel.
1: The U.K. recommends police consider whether waving a Palestinian flag is a criminal act. The U.S. Supreme
0: Court rejects a public figure defamation case.
1: France begins withdrawing troops from Niger.
0: An ex-senator in Haiti pleads guilty for his role in that nation's presidential assassination.
1: George Santos is charged with defrauding campaign donors. The Biden administration takes aim at eliminating junk fees. California enacts an emissions law for big businesses.
0: And the WHO warns the dengue fever may take off in the southern U.S., Europe, and Africa.
1: In our top story, Gaza's sole power plant shuts down and Israel forms a unity government. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Al Jazeera, The Times of Israel, Associated Press, Financial Times, and Sky News. The head of the Gaza Energy Authority announced that the last operational power plant in the enclave stopped working on Wednesday for lack of fuel, leaving only generators to power hospitals and maintain other critical services. This blackout comes as Israel has adopted a total blockade on the Gaza Strip in retaliation against the Hamas surprise attack last weekend, cutting off the electricity supply and blocking the entry of food and fuel to the densely populated enclave. The fuel stock to operate generators will reportedly end on Thursday. Meanwhile, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and National Unity Party leader Benny Gantz announced the establishment of an emergency unity government some four days after the single deadliest day in the country's history. The new wartime cabinet, which will focus only on issues of war, will consist of Netanyahu, Gantz, and current Defense Minister Yoav Gallant for now as opposition leader Yair Lapid didn't immediately respond to the offer to join the cabinet. Israel has had several national unity governments throughout its history, including that of Prime Minister Levi Eshkol in 1967, which was formed on the eve of the Six-Day War. Gantz and Netanyahu previously worked together in a rotation government in 2020-2021. The death toll from the Israel-Hamas conflict has risen to over 2,300 people, 100 Palestinians, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, and 1,200 Israelis, according to the nation's military. The U.S. State Department confirmed on Wednesday that at least 22
0: Americans have been killed after the weekend attacks. Eric, thank you for the update and for the facts on that first story. We're going to start our first round of spins with the pro Palestine narrative from the Middle East Monitor. Extraordinary violence has been committed on both sides, with a humanitarian catastrophe in the making in the Gaza Strip as the Israeli occupation forces are collectively punishing harmless Palestinian civilians with a complete siege that has cut off food, water, and fuel, in addition to continued bombardments targeting residential zones. The
1: pro-Israel narrative comes from the Jerusalem Post. While it's obvious that not all Palestinians are pro-terrorism, civilian suffering was foreseen by Hamas when it decided to carry out atrocities against Israel. The so-called moderate Palestinian authority has exacerbated the violence by calling on its people to kill Israelis. While Israeli forces try to mitigate civilian suffering, they have been left with no option but to repel a violent attack.
0: And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction Community. The nerds have an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 52% chance that the Israeli forces will reach the Palestinian Legislative Council Building in Gaza before November 7th of 2023. A massacre has reportedly taken place at the Kafar Azza Kibbutz in Israel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CNN, Mediaite, The Times of Israel, and Associated Press. The bodies of dozens of Israeli civilians and Hamas fighters have reportedly been found at Kfar Azah, a kibbutz in southern Israel just east of the border with Gaza. The Israeli military took foreign press through the site of the farming community on Tuesday while soldiers went house to house to take away the deceased. Major General Itai Varuv of the Israeli Defense Force, or the IDF, who described the scene as a massacre, said troops under his command spent about 48 hours fighting Hamas militants before finally clearing the area. Some reports suggested that as many as 40 babies were killed and that some of them were beheaded. However, the allegations appear to stem from a single reporter, Nicole Zadek of the Israeli broadcast I-24 News, and the IDF has yet to publicly confirm the claim. Other reporters at Kfar Azaz said they didn't see evidence of beheadings and that none of the officials they spoke to mentioned anything of that nature. Four days after Hamas launched its surprise attack, Israeli health officials said that the death toll had risen to 1,200. Another 3,000 people were reported injured. The fate of 150 people who were taken hostage also remains unknown. Meanwhile, as Israel continues its aerial bombardment of Gaza in retaliation on Wednesday, Palestinian officials said that over 1,000 people had been killed. Aid groups have warned of a humanitarian disaster after Israel stopped the entry of food, water, fuel, and medicine into the territory. A UN agency for Palestinian refugees has also said that nine of its staff members were killed since Saturday. Elsewhere, after Hezbollah in Lebanon, which has ties to Iran, launched anti-tank-guided missiles at an Israeli army post on the northern border on Wednesday, the IDF said it had responded with drone strikes and artillery fire. Cross-border attacks in both directions were also reported on Tuesday. Adam, thank
1: you for the facts of that story. As we begin our round of spins, it starts with a pro-Israel narrative coming from I-24 News. Hamas terrorists committed unspeakable crimes at the Kafar Asa kibbutz which reportedly included horrific and ghastly actions against extremely young children. These atrocities fully justify the firm Israeli response in Gaza to conduct operations against Hamas and urgently
0: rescue hostages. And that's going to be countered with a pro-Palestine narrative brought to us by Middle East Eye. This tragic violence was incubated after decades of death and destruction imposed on Palestinians by Israel, which made Gaza into a veritable open-air prison. Israel will now impose a fierce retaliation, which will not be condemned equally, showing the deep hypocrisy of the West and creating humanitarian cataclysm. And we have an establishment
1: critical narrative coming from Mediaite. These reports of beheadings appear to come from a single journalist and have yet to be confirmed by the IDF. That is not to say these actions did not take place, but at these highly charged times, it is paramount to carefully verify the allegations.
0: And we're going to wrap up the spin on this story with a nerd narrative that says that there's a 55% chance that Hamas will lose control of Gaza before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculus Prediction community.
1: According to the UK Home Secretary, the Palestinian flag is within potential pro-Hamas behavior. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Independent, UN News, LBC, Guardian, Evening Standard, and Yahoo News. In a letter to police chiefs in England and Wales on Tuesday, British Home Secretary Suella Braverman recommended that officers consider whether waving a Palestinian flag, as well as the chanting of pro-Palestine slogans, is a criminal offense if deemed to promote terrorist acts. The letter comes following Hamas's attack on Israel over the weekend, with over 1,000 Israelis reported to have been killed alongside at least 830 Palestinians. After subsequent retaliatory airstrikes by Israel on Gaza, according to UN data. Braverman stated that alongside explicit pro Hamas symbols and chants, behavior that constitute cause for concern as a potential racially aggravated Section 5 public order offense included chants such as, From the River to the Sea, Palestine Will Be Free. Reaffirming that context is crucial. The Home Secretary explained that the waving of a Palestinian flag would be legitimate in some circumstances, but not when intended to glorify acts of terrorism. This comes as separate vigils and rallies in support of both Palestine and Israel were held in London on Monday evening, each attended by thousands of people. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak told reporters that anyone in the country supporting Hamas would be held to account. Hamas is recognized as a terrorist organization in the UK, with membership to the group, the wearing of clothes suggesting membership, and images of flags and logos linked to the group deemed illegal.
0: Thank you, Eric. Our spin's going to start with a Narrative A provided by The Telegraph. The British government is highly cracking down on any form of anti-Semitism in the wake of Hamas's terrorist attack on Israel. Hamas is already prescribed as a terror organization, and anyone showing them support should be prosecuted to the full strength of the law. Narrative B comes from World Socialist Website.
1: While the atrocities committed by Hamas must be condemned to the fullest extent, they must not be conflated with legitimate Palestinian issues. Braverman's intentions may
0: be true, but curtailing freedom of speech and expression is concerning. And here's a prediction from the nerds at Metaculus: They think that there's a 30% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by 2070. Good thing there's no uh, Palestinian soccer teams in the U.K. That could get ugly. That, yeah, it could. What kind of flag are you waving right now? My freak flag. Woohoo! Your freak flag. Waving my freak flag. <laughs> the Supreme Court rejects a public figure defamation case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, the Washington Times, and the Washington Post. The Supreme Court on Monday declined to hear the case of Blankenship versus NBC Universal, which would have allowed the court to make it easier to sue public figures or media companies for defamation. The case, brought by former Massey Energy CEO and West Virginia Senate candidate Don Blankenship, who was convicted in 2015 of a misdemeanor charge for violating mine safety standards and sentenced to one year in prison, takes aim at over a dozen media companies claiming he was falsely called a convicted felon. In its decision not to hear Blankenship's case, the Supreme Court, which previously rejected his attempt to appeal his conviction, let stand both a district court and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling that CNN, Fox News, and 14 other outlets didn't act with, quote, actual malice. His argument is in reference to the 1964 case New York Times Company v. Sullivan, where the court ruled that the press can be held liable for defamation of a public figure only if the publication recklessly printed such information without care for its truth or falseness. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that while he agreed with the court's decision, which would have required four justices to take up the case, he repeated his call for the justices to overturn the 1964 case. Justice Neil Gorsuch has also suggested he would like to review the landmark case. This comes as Justice Thomas has faced a wave of criticism from ProPublica over receiving gifts from a wealthy friend, as well as calls for him to recuse himself from certain cases due to alleged conflicts of interest.
1: Adam, thank you for the facts of that story. As we begin our round of spins with the left narrative coming from First Amendment Watch, there are two things we know for sure at this moment. Ever since Donald Trump ran for office, the Republican Party has been tearing down the credibility of the free press. And Justice Thomas, a conservative who has faced criticism from the press, wants to overturn NYT versus Sullivan. Even Neil Gorsuch, who during his confirmation hearing said the 1964 case's settled law, is now shifting opinion. No one knows what will happen, but it does seem that the GOP is looking to
0: redefine free speech. And that's going to be countered with a right narrative from the constitutionalist. The New York Times v. Sullivan was brought by a man who was never even mentioned in the New York Times' alleged defamatory advertisement. But what about those who were specifically targeted by the press? We live in a very different world today, one in which regular non-public figures can be thrust into the spotlight and hounded by the media simply because the internet made them go viral. New York Times v. Sullivan wasn't meant to protect the press from defaming the average person, and feeding them to the online mob. It's time we rethink this landmark case.
1: Turning our attention to Niger as France begins withdrawing troops. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Al Jazeera, African News, The East African, New York Times, and Euronews. On Tuesday, the French military announced that it had begun withdrawing its troops from their bases in coup-affected Niger, a day after the country's military rulers said the first convoy of French troops would leave the West African country. In a statement, Niger's military said French military personnel left their base in the town of Wallam in southwestern Niger for neighboring Chad in an overland convoy escorted by the Nigerian military. Niger's military rulers urged citizens to cooperate in the operation. The French armed forces said the withdrawal would be conducted Quote, in accordance with the planning and coordination underway, with Niamey assuring on Friday that the removal of some 1,400 French soldiers in the country would take place in complete safety. After initially rejecting demands by Niger's coup leaders to withdraw the troops, French President Emmanuel Macron in late September announced the military's departure after months of anti-French protests. Niamey also forced the French ambassador to leave the Sahel nation. Meanwhile, the U.S. on Tuesday officially designated the military takeover, leading to the ouster of democratically elected President Mohamed Bazoum in July as a military coup. The classification results in the suspension of U.S. assistance to Niger, while about 1,000 U.S. troops will remain in the country. After France's forced withdrawal from Mali and Burkina Faso, Niger emerged as Paris's key ally for its anti-jihadist Sahel operations in mid-2022. Some 1,000 French troops were stationed in the capital, Niamey, with another 400 in the border region with Mali and Burkina Faso. Thank you, Eric. We're going to
0: start these spins with a narrative A brought to us by Politico. France's forced withdrawal from Niger is a humiliation for Paris and heralds the final end of an era in which France considered the Sahel and West Africa effectively its own backyard. But not only that, the withdrawal from Mali, Burkina Faso, and now Niger also fundamentally calls into question France's colonial self-perception as a great world power. Paris will have to fundamentally revise its African relations along with reducing its military presence if it wants to retain its remaining influence in Africa. Narrative B comes from
1: Economist. France's withdrawal from Niger is another setback for its influence in Africa. But Paris had no choice after the coup regime refused to restore the elected president. Moreover, the coup wasn't a response to growing insecurity, but was purely politically motivated. While France achieved tactical successes in its local counter-terrorism campaign, political violence is now rising in Niger, and countries such as Russia, China, and Turkey are expanding their regional clout. This does not bode well for the people
0: of Niger. And the new Arab is going to stop the spin with a narrative C. The fact that the U.S. only officially speaks of a coup in Niger months after the Bazoom's ouster while leaving its troops in the country indicates that Washington is pursuing its very own agenda in Niger. France's withdrawal from African countries like Niger is a true gift for the U.S. and provides it with a unique opportunity to expand its own geopolitical sphere of influence. This is crucial for Washington given the intense competition with powers like Russia to occupy the strategic vacuum left by France. An ex-Haitian senator pleads guilty over a 2021 assassination. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Latin Post, DW.com, and Barron's. In a U.S. court on Tuesday, former Haitian Senator Joseph-Joel John pleaded guilty in Miami for his role in the killing of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moise, who was slain in 2021. The case is being heard in U.S. federal court. John is now the third of 11 defendants to plead guilty in connection with a plot to kill Moise. In the investigation, two other prominent suspects have also entered guilty pleas. Last month, Germain Riviera, a retired officer from the Colombian Army, acknowledged providing material support. Rodolphe Jarre, a dual citizen of Chile and Haiti, pleaded guilty in March and has already received a life sentence. A U.S. investigation uncovered that two managers of the Miami-based security firm CTU devised a plan to kidnap Moise and replace him with Christian Sonon, a Haitian-American who aspired to become president. According to U.S. prosecutors, they were promised substantial future infrastructure and security contracts in exchange for their support. After Moise's assassination, Haiti has endured turmoil as violent gangs now rule the majority of Port-au-Prince and other parts of Haiti. Last week, the U.N. Security Council agreed to send an international force of 1,000 personnel to help restore order.
1: Those were the facts, and the first spin is Narrative A, coming from Jamaica Observer. This case is clear-cut from the perspective of U.S. law. John is the third defendant charged with the July 2021 murder of President Moise at his home outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Due to the fact that the murder plot was organized in Florida, which has a sizable Haitian diaspora, the U.S. has jurisdiction over the case. Along with his other defendants, the former senator from Haiti will probably spend significant time in prison. We're going to continue
0: the spin with a Narrative B from Latin Post. This goes far beyond the interest of the U.S. or the former Moise administration. After President Moise was assassinated two years ago, Violent gangs seized control of significant portions of the island and carried out murders, kidnappings, and gang rapes, plunging Haiti into chaos. This is a vital puzzle piece towards restoring order, democracy, and justice to the Caribbean nation as a whole. And
1: we have a nerd narrative coming from Metaculus Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that Haiti will not become an upper-middle-income country before January 1, 2050. George Santos has been charged with defrauding campaign donors. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NPR Online News, Associated Press, Reuters, and USA Today. The U.S. Department of Justice, or DOJ, has now filed a total of 23 charges against New York Representative George Santos in an updated indictment accusing the congressman of fraudulent criminal schemes as well as lying to the American public process. The latest filing adds 10 new felony charges to the initial 13 count from a May indictment, after which he was released on a $500,000 bond. They also come a week after Santos' former campaign treasurer, Nancy Marks, pleaded guilty to felony charges related to her campaign work. Tuesday's indictment replaces the one from May, accusing Santos of campaign embezzlement, as well as lying to Congress concerning his wealth. The new charges also allege that Santos charged over $44,000 to his campaign using the credit cards of donors without their knowledge. Santos is also alleged to have falsely told the Federal Election Commission, or FEC, that he had raised at least $250,000 in a single quarter, the required amount in order to access support from the Republican Party, as well as that he had made a personal $500,000 loan to his campaign, despite only having $8,000 in his bank accounts. Santos announced earlier this year that he intends to seek re-election to the House. In 2022, Santos admitted to lying concerning his job experience in education during his House campaign, stating that he was, quote, sorry for the sins of embellishing his resume in an interview with the New York Post. While Santos has yet to comment on the new charges, he has denied the allegations in the past, claiming that the investigation against him is a witch hunt.
0: Eric, thank you for the facts. On that story, we're going to begin our spins with a democratic narrative provided by the Daily Beast. Santos continues to find himself in further heaps of trouble, with the representative's financial statements audaciously fraudulent and inconsistent. It is clear that much of Santos' behavior upon his campaign trail wasn't remotely legal, with Nancy Mark's guilty plea agreement seemingly the beginning of the end for the New York Politician.
1: We counter that with the Republican narrative coming from Federalist. Santos isn't the first politician to lie, and if such an offense were to be properly investigated, then the likes of Joe Biden would already be in prison. The two-tiered justice system consistently favors Democrats over Republicans, undermining the people's faith in the department. While it's up to a judge or jury to decide what happens next, the same standards must be applied across
0: the board. President Biden Proposes Banning Junk Fees Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, Associated Press, Reuters, ABC News, and Washington Post. On Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden proposed a new Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, rule that will prohibit private companies from hiding fees widely known as junk fees from consumers. The president said that even if wealthy people aren't bothered by these fees, they matter to working folks, and make it harder for honest businesses who are trying to do the right thing. The proposal would affect several industries, including car rental agencies, hospitality, and businesses that provide tickets to events. A 60-day public comment period will commence once the rule is published in the Federal Register. Although the administration didn't specify when it would go into effect, once the rule is being enforced, Violators will be fined and required to pay back customers. The new proposal comes in the same week the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau issued a guidance to stop large banks from charging their customers excessive fees.
1: Adam, thank you for those facts. The first spin is a Republican narrative coming from Daily Wire. The federal government should stay out of regulating any fees companies charge and should instead let the market dictate. If consumers are offended by charges... They can take their money elsewhere. And if enough people choose this option, the business will suffer. The next step after regulating fees would be the disastrous policy of fixing prices.
0: And Republican narratives are typically followed up by Democratic narratives, and I've got one here that's provided by the American prospect. Republicans might want to let the market dictate the application of hidden fees, but all that's led to is corporate abuses and lost wages for average Americans. This is a winning proposal that will help ordinary folks fight back against the economic elites. Democrats should continue to do more of these simple actions that help a wide swath of people.
1: California enacts an emissions law for big businesses. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Nat Law Review, PBS NewsHour, Guardian, Associated Press, and Reuters. On Saturday, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a new law requiring large businesses to start disclosing a range of greenhouse emissions starting from 2026. Seventeen states already require direct emissions to be disclosed by major emitters. The California Air Resources Board must set up a reporting system by January 1, 2025. SB 253 applies to over 5,300 firms with annual revenues over $1 billion the emissions they must report include those from building operations, employee travel, and transportation. A companion bill passed by California would also require firms earning over $500 million annually to disclose their climate-related financial risks beginning in 2026. California had earlier set climate policies like aiming to ban gas-powered car sales by 2035 and reducing emissions by 2030 to 40% below 1990 level. The new law in the largest economy among U.S. states comes as the Securities and Exchange Commission is in the midst
0: of finalizing climate-related disclosure rules. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts. Our spins are going to begin with a narrative A provided by Washington Post. California is leading the way in a growing movement that is nudging big business to give investors a better idea of the climate risks they face. As cleaner energy becomes increasingly the norm, businesses that don't comply could face expensive litigation. This is great news as the world's fifth-largest economy rolls out this vital green policy.
1: Follow that up with Narrative B coming from Morningstar. This all has the potential to backfire on California. The burden and complexity of the new law are likely to force companies out of California to states with lighter regulations. The one-size-fits-all emissions rules unfairly lump various metrics together making the following of these rules expensive.
0: And the nerds have an opinion. They think that there's a 50% chance that California will carry through with Governor Newsom's plan to sell only zero-emission electric cars and passenger trucks by 2035. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, how many electric cars do you have? I have several. I just, I can't find the remote controls to all of them. Oh, you, you have like little bitty electric cars for, yeah, is that yeah. for, um, for your family of mice, right? Ab- Don't absolutely. Don't you have like a? I uh...
1: I do. Yes. I have a,
0: I have a mouse farm. Yes. Well, it's more than a farm, from what I heard. I think it's a. I didn't really want to talk about the mouse farm. It's a like a mouse city you've got going on. Shh, it's kind of like no,
1: we can't talk about
0: no. Well, you're building like a Legoland thing, right? But with like mice. No. Can't do it. No. I really want to know how you're training the mice to run the rides. That's what I really want to, to like just I can't to, to stand there and push the button and they go, okay. I, I okay, everybody load up. Okay, here we go. You have a friend today. Okay, ready, one, two, three, here we go. Yeah, I can't I, I can't disclose anything about it. Is it because Disney's cracking down on it? Yes. They, they're saying yes. they're saying they are saying they are the only theme park that can have a mouse. Absolutely. I'm sorry, dude. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well. Yours is totally different. Yeah. In our final story today, the World Health Organization warns that the dengue fever may take off in the southern U.S., Europe, and Africa. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Forbes, USA Today, CNN, and Fox News. The World Health Organization has warned that the southern U.S., southern Europe, and new parts of Africa could face a major threat from dengue fever over the rest of this decade. Jeremy Farrar, A WHO infectious disease specialist has suggested that dengue fever could take off in these regions. Dengue causes approximately 20,000 deaths per year, mostly in Asia and Latin America. Dengue, which is a virus spread through the bites of infected female mosquitoes, is also known as breakbone fever because it can cause extreme pain. Cases in the U.S. traditionally occur when travelers contract the illness in countries where the disease is widespread, but travelers can also bring the virus to the local mosquito population. These included documented cases in Florida in August. This month, in Bangladesh, where dengue is endemic, more than 1,000 people have died in the worst recorded outbreak, with many cases occurring outside of dense urban areas for the first time. In late September, a dengue outbreak swept through Jamaica, leading to 565 cases. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, reports that up to 400 million people are infected with dengue annually worldwide, with 100 million becoming ill and 40,000 dying. Adam, thank you for laying out those facts. Our
1: first spin is Narrative A, coming from the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. While deniers of global warming continue to hinder progress in battling climate change impacts, a warming world is now making it easier for mosquitoes to spread another dangerous virus to a wider array of victims. It's vital to address the full scope of the climate emergency ranging from wildfires to storms to floods and even new infectious disease threats.
0: And we're going to wrap up today's podcast with a narrative B from What's Up With That. Despite what climate alarmists may say, there's hardly a link between dengue fever and climate change. Numerous studies have shown that there has been no temperature rise in the areas where dengue is most widespread, and the disease hasn't changed or spread in any novel way since it was discovered centuries ago. Climate change can't be the common denominator of everything, including dengue fever. Eric, we had a lot of tough stories going through today, but I'd like to wrap up our podcast with a really quick joke. Okay, let's do it. So my wife and I took a trip to the West Indies. Jamaica? No, it was her own idea.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, October 12th, 2023.
0: Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers, and we figure out which ones are about the same stories. Then for each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: Find out more at verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.